Lord, I thank you that for this series that you've put on my heart. I thank you that we have such wonderful couples here, even way more than I even listed, Lord, that, that are go- changing the world for eternity. And Lord, I pray as we go through this, this sermon series that you would touch the hearts of married couples, Lord, and speak your truth into them. And I pray, Jesus, that it would be your words, not mine. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, how many of you married your opposite? Anybody? A few of you married your opposite, right? You know, I think most of us, to some degree, married our, married our opposite. The, the old saying that opposites attract is, is statistically true. Did you know, for the most part, most, of the, most married couples in America, one of them is either an extrovert and the other one is an introvert. Now, not all the time, but for the most part, that is statistically true. That somebody married, an, if you're an introvert, you probably married an extrovert, and vice versa. You know, in a, in a typical marriage, one of you likes to save money, and the other one had no idea that you even could. <laughs> thought money was there to be spent, right? Yeah, true story. In most marriages, somebody usually likes to go on big vacations. They want to see parts of the world they've never seen. And the other one wants to stay home, be local, go camping, Right? Is this true? In a, typ- in a typical marriage, one of you wants to go out and be social, be out as many nights as you possibly can, and the other one loves to be home and to stay home. See, I love anything to do with competition. Me and my kiddos, we play games all the time. We're constantly competing against each other, and my wife is the least mo- most competitive person you will ever meet in your life, unless it's fantasy football. My, my wife would almost rather somebody else win than herself. And it drives me bonkers. It drives me crazy. We're polar opposites. Yet you ended up marrying someone that was probably opposite of you in a lot of areas. And here's the thing. When you're dating, opposites attract. When you're married, opposites attack. It's true. When you're dating, opposites attract. And when you're married, opposites attacked. It's like the whole game gets flipped. We've been preaching this series out of Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but this morning we're going to go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, if you want to begin to turn there. And we're going to go to Jesus referencing Genesis 2 and 3. So we're going to get Jesus' opinion on Genesis 2 and 3 from, from his perspective and the conversation that he is having. So Matthew 19 verse 3 says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so here they are, they were testing Jesus. And and here's what they were testing him about, or at least one of the ways that they were testing him. And and in in Jesus's day, there was the Old Testament law said, if your wife was unclean, then you could give her a certificate of divorce. Has anybody else read that in the Old Testament, right? That was a factual thing. Well, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of controversy on what that actually meant. So, for example, there was a rabbi in Jesus' day. His name was, if I'm pronouncing it right, Shimi. Shimai, Shimi. And he was very popular. And he taught this, the, that uncleanliness was only sexual immorality. And so he taught what Jesus is going to teach in just a few, in a few verses. And he taught that, hey, you are only allowed to give your wife a certificate of divorce if there's sexual morality. But there was probably an equally or probably even more popular rabbi in Jesus' day, and his name was Hamel. And Hamel taught 
That word uncleanliness in the Old Testament means just about anything. So if your wife does not satisfy you anymore, if, 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 it doesn't, if, it, if it doesn't seem to be the thing for you anymore, you could give your wife a certificate of divorce. Now, ladies in the room, just please understand that most women at that time did not divorce their husbands. It was the other way around. So that's why he's addressing men, because that's important to, important to know that, right? But, so there's all these different thoughts on what this word uncleanliness means. And so in the Pharisees' mind, they're going, hey, we can, we can split Jesus' followers in half right here. We can get people to go against him in this moment. Because some people believe this way, and some people believe that way. So Jesus goes on, he says in verse 4, goes on and says in verse 4, says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see the, the Genesis response here? So he's going back to Genesis here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, let not man separate. So I just got to say this, you know, there's this Monday night football tradition that started years ago. And so on Monday night on ESPN, they have a show called Come On Man. Anybody ever catch that? Yes. Okay. It's kind of funny, right? So it's the host of this supposed football experts and they, they find things that were funny that happened during games or in sports in general. And they, and they show this clip and then they all respond, come on, man. That's how it goes. Like, is, are you kidding me? This really happened? This is my come on man moment, okay? Let me, let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you don't know that there's a difference between boys and girls, come on, man. Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. Come on, man. If, if you don't know that that difference even goes just even beyond physical, come on, man. Come on. I was listening to news the other day, and you know in California, they passed a law. In California, they passed this law. If you sell baby's clothing, and you have a section for boys, and you have a section for girls, you now have to have a unisex section, or you will face fines. The state will literally fine you if you don't have a unisex section for baby clothing. Come on, man. Come on. You're crazy. It's like this. This is something that there's something seriously wrong in America. Like Genesis is so clear, but even if you just took the Bible outside, Bible by itself, put it aside, and said, "Is there a difference between boys and girls?" Absolutely, everybody understands that. Come on, man! Like, figure this out. This is what I think happens. This is what I truly believe. If you don't believe that there's a difference between boys and girls physically and even just on a, on a spiritual, emotional, whatever level. Listen, you are what I think God says, spiritually ignorant. Or excuse me, willfully ignorant. Which means you are choosing to say, oh, I know that's probably a fact, but I'm not going to believe it. That's a scary place to be. Glad to get that off my chest. Verse 7. <laughs> Verse 7. They said him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, you got to understand the times, right? A man was the provider. It wasn't like modern-day America. So think about this situation. If a man says, I'm divorcing you and I'm sending you away, all of her provision is gone, right? 
And not only that, in society, she just took a step down. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. He said to them, because of the hardness of, of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, back to Genesis, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, do you see what happened here? Even the disciples were on the track of a man should just be able to leave his wife at will whenever he feels like it. Basically devastate her life. Now, if you ask me, this almost sounds like one of my teenagers here. Now, most of the disciples were teenagers, so I guess that kind of makes sense, right? Now, I'm raising some teenagers, and when I give them guidelines, when I set the rules down, what's one of the things I hear a lot? Well, then I might as well not do it at all. Isn't that kind of what you, you like? It kind of sounds like the disciples are doing here. Like, for example, this, 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 this may have happened to my house a couple times. Right? I tell them, hey, you can message your friends. You can message them on your phone. You can message them on, 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 on the internet. But I reserve the right to read all messages whatsoever. And so when dad finds out that some messages have been deleted, that right goes away. Because then I technically ruined their life. Right? It's ruined their life. And then I get told, well, if people can just read my messages, I might not message at all. Okay, don't then. <laughs> do what you want. I don't, whatever, right? Isn't that kind of what it sounds like here? Isn't, isn't this what, the, what that is? They're kind, of, they're kind of whining. The disciples forget. Hey, listen, there, there's, there's plenty of marriages in the world today, right now, in their time, that are healthy. And that people love each other. And they're great. And the disciples kind of throw that aside. Not to mention that in Scripture, there are couples, power couples, that built the nation of Israel together, that were under the covenant of God together. And the disciples, instead of taking that all into account, they say, well, it'd be better if we just didn't marry at all. Right? Because Jesus is closing their loophole. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to make this commitment before God, then there's only specific reasons you can break that commitment. If you're going to come under that covenant, covenant, and the disciples were not happy about that. They were not happy about that. Guess what? Same is true today, isn't it? Different times, same, people are still the same. We haven't changed one bit. We still have our sinful desires. And God wants you to have a totally awesome marriage. And to do that, we need to be covenant keeping. Say it with me. Covenant keeping. Covenant keeping. See, there are three approaches that we can take to marriage. Three approaches, and they all have different outcomes and different consequences. The first one I want to talk to you about is the casual approach. The casual approach. The casual approach means that marriage is no big deal. It's just a piece of paper. And when you believe that, usually comes along with it is that sex is no big deal. No, nothing, nothing big, right? Usually meaning that I can do what I want with whoever I want as long as it makes me feel good. It's a casual approach. And this is what this evolves into. This evolves into boyfriends and girlfriends living together. Did you know the vast majority of Americans that are boyfriend and girlfriend that have been dating for you know, a good amount of time are living together? Statistically, that's true in America, 
right? Now, this is not to bring shame to anybody. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm trying to do is make you see that how that can be harmful to your relationship in the future and how, how that can harm your relationship with God. So what happens? We got the casual approach. We move in together, right? We, we, start, we start sharing chores. We cook dinner together. I put my toothbrush next to your toothbrush, right? We, we, we're playing house, and we share a bed together. And then what happens when it doesn't work out? Because we're only boyfriend and girlfriend. I pack up my stuff, and I leave. And I move on to the next relationship that I'm getting into. Now, here's what you just did. You played house, you pretended to be married, and you practiced divorce. Think about that. Played house, you pretended to be married, and you practiced divorce. So then you find the person of your dreams, the one that you absolutely love, the one you're going to spend your life with, and you marry them, and you're living together, and things get difficult. Anybody know that marriage can be difficult at times? Right? Anybody? Amen. And what's the first response? I quit. I divorce. And why is that so simple? Why is that so easy? Because when you practice something, it's easy to continually do it over and over again. And so therefore you played house and you, you practice being married and you practice divorcing. And then when you get into the real thing, it's easy to divorce. It's easy to call quits. It's easy to be done with it. The second approach is a contractual report, a, approach. It's the idea is that marriage is built between a contract between two people, right? What's a, what's, a, what's a contract based on when you really think about it? Mutual distrust, right? That's why you have a contract, right? For example, we still own our house in Sandpoint. We still have it. We have good friends of ours that are living there, right? And uh, so far, it's worked out really good. You know what our contract between them is? A handshake. That's a handshake. Like, they, they, they're good friends of ours. They've watched our kids. Tracy worked with them. And so far, you know, they've made improvements to the house. It's been really good. But do you know what would happen if, if I had this house in Sandpoint and I didn't know the people I was going to rent to? I would have a contract. If I didn't know them or didn't trust them for whatever reason, I would make them sign on the dotted line. Because here's what a contract does. When you really think about it, it protects your rights and limits your responsibilities. And some people approach marriage that exact same way. Some people approach the marriage, I'm signing on this dotted line, this marriage certificate, because I have certain rights that I want out of you, and I have certain limitations that I'm keeping from you. And that is not a healthy way, a totally awesome marriage. Marriages should be unconditional love the betterment of the other person. So when you have a contract approach, what happens? What happens? Well, things get difficult. They call me a name. They, they are fulfilling their obligations. We're fin struggling financially. And what happens in business when things ha struggle, struggle under a contract? You break the contract. You renegotiate the contract. You say, this doesn't work for me anymore. And you terminate the contract. And that's not how we approach marriage. 
But when you do, if you come from a business perspective of I will bring this to the table, you bring this to the table, but if, if it doesn't get fulfilled anymore, I'm done, it's easy to get divorced. It's not having a totally awesome marriage. The third, the third approach to a marriage is the covenant approach to a marriage, which is the Christian approach to a marriage, or at least should be the Christian approach to a marriage. The covenant approach is that it's a holy covenant before God. It's a holy covenant before God. And here's what motivates a, a covenant relationship. Mutual commitment, unconditional commitment, and unconditional love for each other. It's, it's not a limited time approach. It's not a contract of responsibilities. It's not motivated by selfish reasons. It's a covenant before God approach. The word covenant in Hebrew is, is the word bereath. It's the word bereath. But we kind of lose the, the definition in English a little bit. So let me, let me read you a, a definition of bereath. It's in the sense of cutting a compact made by passing between pieces of flesh. Now, when I first looked up this, this definition, I was like, no way. That, like, literally, that is one of the definitions. A compact made by passing between two pieces of flesh. Because here's what would happen in the Old Testament. When people would make a covenant together, they would literally cut an animal in half. And they would lay half on one side, and they would lay half on the other. And they would make this covenant by passing through it together. And you're going to see this when we get to our Abraham series about being satisfied with life. You're going to see this with Abraham. But here's what you're saying. If I break this covenant, let what happened to this animal happen to me also. That's much more serious than we take marriage today, right? (laughs) Right? If I break this covenant, just cut me straight in half. I don't think anybody wants that. But you see how serious... A covenant was. Now I know that that seems a little far out there for today's culture, but that's what they did in ancient Israel. But it's much, much more serious view of a covenant in a marriage. Today, people act as if marriage doesn't matter, as if it's not even important. Like we'll just divorce if we're not happy anymore, and that'll and that'll be the end of it. Think about this for a minute. As America has gotten away from biblical values, taking prayer to school, and people have stopped coming to church, marriage has become less and less important. That should be no surprise, right? We have the divorce rate on the rise. In fact, actually, the divorce rate is kind of lowering. Did you guys know that? Because people are choosing not to even get married at all. We'll just live together. We'll have kids together. And when I feel like moving on, I'll just move on. Let's not even get married anymore. I'm here to tell you this morning, marriage matters to Jesus. Marriage matters to Jesus. It's important. Don't, do, do not fall into the scheme of the world, which is marriage doesn't matter, and if you're tired, just get done with it. No, marriage matters to Jesus. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about what an ancient Hebrew wedding would look like. Now, keep in mind... This would change over time, and, and people would do different things. Not everybody did it exactly the same way. But let's look at what an ancient Hebrew wedding would look like. One of the things that they would do, now today, 
I could see how this would be misinterpreted because I, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the occult does this. A lot of like devil worshiping happens, but probably comes from some biblical backgrounds, to be honest. One of the things that would happen in ancient Israel is they would nick the couple's hands so that there's a little bit of blood drawn, probably not a lot, but a little bit. And then the priest would take their hands and they would join them together. Think about that. What's the definition of a covenant? A cutting, right? So th- like when the, che- when the priest joins them together, they're saying, you are making covenant. This is a covenant relationship. It's important. What, what does that really mean? Well, you couldn't have, in the Old Testament and in the New, as we're going to see in a minute, the, a covenant was established by the shedding of blood. You're like, we walk that in the New Testament. Okay? Another thing that they would do is they would exchange vows. Do you guys know that? That's still something we, we, we practice today. They would exchange vows with one another. Then another, another section of, of, the, of the ceremony would be the, the hoopah. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Anybody, anybody? Okay, hoopah, right? Anybody, anybody know what a hoopah is? They still use it today, right? So today, in a, in a Jewish wedding, the couple stands under a canopy called the hoopah to get married. But that's not what it was in the Old Testament. It's not what it was in ancient Israel. So in ancient Israel, the couple would stand there, bleeding from the hand, saying their vows, and they would just stop the ceremony, and they say, okay, go. And everybody's standing there waiting. They're, they're just chilling. And they would go to the hoopah. Maybe a better word, a bridal chamber, where they would do physically what happens spiritually when two, couple, when two people come under covenant together that are a man and a woman. So physically what happens is they become one flesh. Spiritually what happens, they become one flesh. Then they would come back and everybody, woo, let's party and celebrate because they are officially married. So the nation that walked under a covenant with God understood that when you take this vow, you are making a covenant before God. You are becoming one flesh. It was important the Israelites, it's important to God. And those of us that are born-again believers under the new covenant, we understand this concept, right? Because there's, there's a shedding of blood, and that's what covenant means. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says this. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. So we have covenant because we have the shedding of blood. Jesus went to the cross for your forgiveness and made a covenant with you for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Did you see the word redeems here? This is a be- the beautiful part of the new covenant. Jesus takes your sinfulness and he transforms it into righteousness. He takes your sinfulness and he washes it away. He makes you new. You are a new creation under Christ Jesus. And let me me explain that. When you were born again spiritually, you were born again sexually. Did you know that? Think about this for a minute. And this is going to be important because there's probably some people in the room that are struggling with guilt. 
struggling with what they did in the past. And they need to start walking in the freedom that Jesus offers. When you were born again spiritually, you were born again sexually. He transforms you. You are a new creation in Christ. Not so that we can continue to sin, but so that we can walk new in a new life with Jesus. And there's some people in the room that are divorced. And there's some people in the room, the, the room that had sex outside of marriage. And there's some people in the room that probably have committed affairs. I want you to know that when you walked under the blood of Jesus, that you, that you became under his covenant, when you were born again, you were born again sexually also. You have been forgiven. Let that guilt go. Let Jesus' forgiveness wash over you. You are completely made. Yes, would you? Yes, you are completely made new in Jesus Christ. And we have to know that. We have to understand that. The worship team wants to come, come up. This, in, this entire series, I have, I've given you homework to do, right? So if you remember the first week, we talked about being Jesus-centered. And what was the homework? Pray with your spouse 90 seconds a day, right? Hopefully you've been doing that. Just quick, 90 seconds, pray with your spouse every single day. Now, week number two was we are mission unified. We want to have a totally awesome marriage and be mission unified. You were supposed to create a mission statement with your spouse, right? I had some couples that met with me and were like, I don't even know how to do this. And so I was able to walk them through that. thought it was awesome. Week three, we, last week, we talked about being devil stomping. And we talked about how to protect your marriage above all else, right? Do not allow Satan to, to weave his lies and his schemes into your marriage and destroy your marriage. This week, I'm going to challenge you to be covenant-keeping. We need to renew our vows. We need to remember what we promised before God on that day. We have this wonderful couple in our church, Chris and Penny. Can you guys raise your hand? You get, most of you know Chris and Penny, right? We you raise your hands here? I got to tell you, as, I, as I've gotten to know them, they're like newlyweds, guys. Like, they are. They love each other. They really do. Like, that was one thing I picked up right away is they absolutely in love with each other. They protect their, their marriage. They know that they are in covenant with one another. They, they are truly in love with one another. And as I was chatting with them one day, I picked up on the fact, they told me, one of the things they do every single year on their anniversary is they renew their vows. They go somewhere special. Last year it was the Montana State Capitol Building. They went to the Capitol Building, took a trip out of town, and in the, in the State Capitol Building, they renewed their vows. They've done it on cliffs above lakes and things like that. They were telling me about it. I love that. I want you to know that when you stood before God with, with your wife or with your husband, you made vows to each other to be covenant-keeping. Now, it's okay to remember those vows. Think about it. We took communion last week, right? What is communion, really? Communion is celebration and remembrance of that that covenant that we have with Jesus that causes us to be born again, that wipes away all of our sin. It's okay to remember the vows that you took with your wife. That's a good thing. So this is what I'm going to encourage you to do. This is your homework. When you have time and in a special moment, renew your vows with your spouse. Renew them. If it, do it often. Do it at least yearly on your anniversary. Stand before God and remember the vows that you took and the covenant that you have. When, when I was uh, 
going to be ordained not too long ago. We, uh, Tracy and I were both ordained with the Assembly of God. And we were in this, this meeting with four other pastors, and two of them I know, and I'm good friends with them, and we're chatting. And, and apparently, I had no idea what a shotgun wedding is. So as we're talking, and I'm like, yeah, they asked, said, how did you guys meet, and how did you guys get married? And I'm telling the story, and I said, we had a shotgun wedding. And my wife starts laughing. Like she's dying, and they're looking at me, and I'm like, I, in my mind, I thought shotgun wedding meant you got married quickly. Like we met in February and married in October. And they're just like, they're blown away. And my wife in the sweetest, nicest way says, I don't want to be disrespectful, but he has no idea what that means. He has no idea what that means. Here's one of my big regrets. We got married so fast. We did it in such a way that we did not really remember our vows. So it's one of the regrets that I have. This week, me and my wife are going to rewrite our vows and we're going to start doing this. Yes, yes, it's important. I want you to do that too. Whether you use the vows that you took or you even tweak them a little bit, maybe you were not saved, now you're saved, whatever that looks like. Start, start renewing your vows. Remember, you are covenant-keeping before God. You are covenant-keeping before God. Amen?